Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come and we pray that today, that your will would be done in us, in each one of us as individuals, in our homes, and in our church, in our communities, our country, and our world. We pray that your will be done. And Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize, even as we sing, that we are prone to self-exalting, to self-centeredness, to self-focus. Teach us to seek your kingdom first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And have a seat. I'm going to talk about something today that can be quite controversial. It's not popular. It's definitely not politically correct. And some of you will be fascinated or fixated by this topic. Others may be bored by it, though I hope not. But at the end of the day, like you and I, may not see eye to eye on everything. And that's okay. What I feel is I have the responsibility to preach the word of God and what I believe it says the best I can. So that's the approach I'm taking, to just present to you what I believe the Bible teaches and let you choose whether to accept or reject it. If you shoot the messenger, so be it. All right, we'll mainly be in Ephesians chapter 5 today, but we'll open up to Genesis 1 to 2 to start again. So go ahead and open up, find a Bible. If you don't have one, you can find one in the, the seats in front of you, hopefully, and open up to the first couple pages of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. In our home life series, we're talking about how life in Christ impacts our home relationships. And we've started with a number of weeks on marriage which directly applies to many of you and doesn't directly apply to many others. But if that's you, don't worry. Your turn is coming later this fall. But for all of us, I think it is important that we learn these truths from God's word wherever we are in life. So far, we've talked about marriage being the design of God and the covenant of loving faithfulness. But just how are these marriages supposed to look or act? Are there roles that we should be playing within our marriage? How are Christian husbands and wives supposed to relate to each other? Now, the Bible's answers to those questions have been discussed and debated and disparaged and dismissed by many. Some will snicker, others will scoff. You don't really believe that, do you? But we don't want to do that today. We don't want to do any of that. Even if we might feel defensive at times, I believe God's word is too holy and too important to dismiss. But also, on the other hand, plenty of people have misunderstood these things, and it caused plenty of hurt and offense, and we don't want to do that either. I want this to lead to love, joy, and peace. And when these truths that we'll see are properly understood, I don't believe they're nearly that controversial. They are radically countercultural in 2022, yes, but also beautiful and best for us. So read with me. I'm going to start in verse 26 of Genesis 1, where it just says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now what 
these verses tell us, many things, but one thing this tells us is that God created us humans as uniquely gendered beings. Now, that might be the most controversial truth that the church teaches today, but it's true. Men and women, we believe, are equal in dignity and essence and worth and value and destiny, and yet we are also distinct, different from each other in complementary ways. And Kathy Keller makes the claim that I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way God has designed me or if I despise the gifts he may have given to help me fulfill my calling. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. And this carries over into marriage. Genesis 1.28, we just read, implies that our complementary roles are necessary to fulfilling our mandate that God has given us. And then, when marriage is further described in the next chapter, we read this in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then he goes on to make woman. And if woman is to be a helper fit for man, that speaks to both her equal worth and value, as well as her corresponding differences as his perfect counterpart. It's like we're two different puzzle pieces that God has designed to fit together and make a whole. See, here's the point. That God has commissioned complementary missions for spouses in marriage. Now, I know those are big words. I thought of saying it differently. I thought of saying God designed complementary roles to play. But I think that might undersell what God was giving us. He's not just giving us job descriptions with expected duties to fulfill. He's giving us a mission. He's commissioning us to a mission to carry out for our good and his glory. So God has commissioned complementary missions for spouses in marriage. Also, Lest I be misunderstood, complementary has an E in the middle, not an I. So it's not saying that we're just like uh, some free continental breakfast. It's complementary. Or, or it's not saying that we're just supposed to pay compliments to each other all the time. Like, oh, you look really good today. Oh, no, you look good. <laughs> no, we're meant to complement each other. Two different parts coming together and enhancing or improving what we could do on our own. Like we saw two weeks ago, to be a helper isn't calling a wife weak or inferior in the least. God is called our helper too. Same word. And this means making up what is lacking in someone with your strength, with your gifts. Later, the Bible clearly identifies the husband as the head of a home, but he needs his wife. The head can't live on its own. And we are gifted differently to carry out distinct missions within our homes with our gifts. Now, we personally may be stronger or weaker in certain gifts, and we certainly may not fit stereotypes. But if biblical gender roles are gifts from God, then we should seek to nourish wherever we're weak instead of abdicating our roles or abandoning our God-given missions. Now, if you're unmarried or maybe you're in a struggling marriage, you may feel that our differences are simply too great. It's men and women. Like, men are from Mars Women are from Venus, and never shall those two orbits meet. <laughs> you may be frustrated by your attempts to relate to the opposite sex, 
Or you may be fed up with the way that your spouse has floundered in relating to you. This is something that at times has been labeled the problem of otherness. Of otherness. It's easy for us to to define who we are, our identity, against others who are different than us. And thus we end up belittling or excluding or despising or subordinating the other. And Kathy Keller explains how this affects marriages, saying loving someone of the other sex is hard. Misunderstandings, angry explosions, and tears abound. We cannot understand each other. And since the default mode of the human heart is self-justification, where we cannot understand the other sex, we assume inferiority. However, marriage in the biblical view addresses the chasm between the sexes. Marriage is a full embrace of the other sex. We accept and yet struggle with the gendered otherness of our spouse, and in the process, we grow and flourish in ways otherwise impossible. We are both radically different and yet incomplete without each other. And this, of course, if you think about it, reflects the way that God has embraced us. He's holy. We are very other to him. But the way that Christ has embraced us shows that loving the other will require commitment and it will require sacrifice. But when we do sacrificially commit to loving others, to our respective missions, it brings growth and restoration. Andrew Wilson has written, uh, a brilliant essay online called Beautiful Difference. And in it, he talks about how complementarity, so in other words, a relationship or situation in which two or more different things improve or emphasize each other's qualities. That's complementarity. So he says how complementarity is written into creation itself. Like think of God distinguishing and separating one thing from the other over and over again. Heavens and earth, light from darkness, day from night, waters below from above, sea from land, sun from moon, fish from birds, and all kinds of domestic and wild animals. And then he makes human beings and he differentiates between male and female. Like we are neither identical to nor interchangeable with each other. And so Wilson says, there is a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart of what God has made. And then he says, like, think about how life comes about when creation's beautiful differences interact with each other. Like the heavens with the earth, with the sun and rain and soil. We get plants and wildlife. Or in human procreation, men and women together produce new life. Wilson goes on, Christians are called to express the complementarity of male and female in this present age. This is not just a matter of obedience to specific biblical instructions, although that should be enough but as a way of putting beautiful difference on display for a world that needs to see it and rarely does. The primary context in which it's displayed is the family. The most obvious form of this is marriage. And God calls us to something that's meant to be very beautiful. But it's not that way, you say. And you're right. The beauty has been very broken. The, we were commissioned with our missions in a perfect, safe, pre-fall world. Our missions weren't designed originally for a broken world where we brutalize God's gifts. In fact, getting our missions wrong is partly to blame for our fall in the first place. Think about it, the, the woman acted as a head, and the man acted as a helper, both of them unwisely so, and then 
the breakdown of their marriage roles broke everything else. And now under sin, our male and female tendencies and our gifts become painfully twisted. Men's calling devolves or degenerates into this alpha male hypermasculinity or irresponsible passivity. In other words, men become oppressive dictators or apathetic pushovers. And women's calling devolves into clinging hyperfemininity or defiant individualism. In other words, women become mistreated walkovers or rebellious usurpers. Essentially, we both, all of us, can take our gifts to the sinful extreme or sinfully reject them. Happens to all of us. Now, God forbid that we would ever make light of abuse suffered by people when God's word is twisted. But at the same time, we should never throw the baby of God's truth out with the bathwater of our sin. This really goes to show just how much we need Jesus. Right? To, to step in and to save and redeem and restore us. The only way that, that marriages will be restored to fulfilling God's mission is when we all humbly dignify each other by honoring the way that God designed us to live. So, if God has designed missions for husbands and wives in marriage, what are they? And this is where we're going to turn over to Ephesians 5 together. So go ahead and turn over there with me to Ephesians 5. The page number is on the screen, I believe. And this is where the headship helper picture from Genesis is expanded upon. And here in Ephesians, it goes ladies first. So, God has commissioned complementary missions for spouses in marriage. And wives should sacrificially love and submit to their husbands. This is the point we're going to see. Wives should sacrificially love and submit to their husbands. Now, we spent basically all last school year going through Ephesians as a church. So many of you will know that chapter 5 falls in the context of living out the gospel. Jesus has saved us from sin, death, and hell by grace, through faith, and that gospel should then massively affect how we live our daily lives. And in verse 21 here, in chapter 5, it says that all Christians are called to forms of submission. Look at it. In verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And submission or submitting to one another has to do with order or authority, placing oneself under someone else's authority. It's submitting our opinions, our rights, and our desires to be subservient to others, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone submits to everyone else equally. If you think about that, that would be nonsensical. That would be unlivable. This means that we are all to submit to any appropriate authorities that God places in our lives. But notice here that any submission for any of us is to be done out of love and reverence for who? For Christ. And that's right when wives are addressed directly. In the next verse, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now focus on those last four words, as to the Lord. Why do you, sisters, follow the Lord or submit to the Lord? Hopefully it's because you love him. 
So then, if wives should submit to husbands in the same way that they do to God, it doesn't mean that you treat your husband as little gods. Heavens, no. (laughs) It means wives should submit to their husbands because they love them. That's why I said wives should sacrificially love and submit to their husbands. Now, I'm not naive. I know this can be costly. It's clearly sacrificial. Now, you may have to sacrifice your pride, your opinions, your goals, or your desires. But this is no less than how all Christians are called to live, with selfless, costly humility. And if you're doing this from a starting point, a heart of love, then it's much easier to do. Now, as soon as I mention the word submission, I know that alarm bells go off in many of your minds. It can sound so demeaning or patriarchal. You may imagine some domesticated housewife stuck in a kitchen or scurrying around doing everything that she's told to do. But that's not the Bible's picture at all. That's our imaginary pictures. Like the Bible sees godly submission as dignified, strong, and noble. Dignified, strong, and noble. And I'm going to give you three observations on this. First of all here, notice that submission is a voluntary free gift that wives offer their husbands. Right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So women are not to submit to men in general, okay? but wives to their own husbands. And more importantly, husbands are not told to make their wives submit. Never. Submission is to be a gift lovingly offered, not a duty coerced from women. And only domineering, tyrannical men will try to force submission in others. Wives, if your husband tries to make you submit, tell him to mind their own business. (laughs) Like it's your calling and your free response to the Lord, not his. It's not his right. Second, when wives submit to their husbands... They're reflecting a much higher, greater relationship. Look at down at verse 24. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Question. Is the church meant to be a weak, subdued doormat? No. The church is meant to be a dignified, strong, noble body of people who really are being glorified by God. And at the same time, we're meant to willingly surrender our love to King Jesus. In fact, it's that placing ourselves under Jesus that most dignifies us. Which further implies... That submitting does not lower our status or value as people at all. In some cases, it gives us our highest dignity. And third, maybe most importantly, submission is something that even Jesus did. When he submitted to his Father's will and went to the cross, sacrificing himself for us, Jesus was not forced, subjugated, or coerced. Neither was he inferior in any way. Philippians 2 says that he didn't grasp at his equality with God, but made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant and a human and became obedient to the point of death. And ultimately, this submission led to eternal glory for Christ, the name above all names. Kathy Keller says that for years she she bristled at the teachings at submission until one day as she read Philippians 2, it clicked. She says, and then I saw it. 
if it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? There is no inequality of ability or dignity. We are differently gendered to reflect the life of God within the Trinity. Male and female are differently gendered. Oh, sorry, male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity through loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. The Son takes a subordinate role, and in that movement, he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. And so, married ladies. If you want to follow Jesus' path toward greatness, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that practically look like, though? Well, I think that it's related to that picture of a husband being the head, which we read in verse 23. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, without getting into the debates over this verse, I want to suggest to you that, that headship refers to both leadership and provision. Like the, the head on your body determines or directs what your body does. And also like the headwaters of a river are the source of nourishing provision. After all, that's what Christ does for the church. Right? He leads us and he provides for us. Now, this does not mean that a wife never leads or provides in a home. Not in the least. Like some wives have super strong leadership gifts, which should and can be used I believe what this does mean is that a husband holds the primary, not sole, the primary responsibility for these things. So if that's the case, then what would a wife's mission of submission look like? Well, it would look like following a husband's lead and accepting his provision. In other words, complimenting supporting, or helping him in the mission that God gave him. After all, that's what the church does for Christ. We have a mission under him, a sub-mission. So, I mean, serving alongside your husband with equal dignity, using your gifts to the fullest, all the while encouraging him to take a place of leadership in your home. I also think respect can play a major part in submission. Like it says later on in this passage, at the end, verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But no matter what, I know this will take sacrifice. A Christ-like wife Loves and submits, even if it costs her. Now that said, the Bible is strikingly unspecific and undetailed on what this will look like. Perhaps because it will play out differently in different cultures and times and contexts. Which means, beware of rigid cultural, traditional or stereotypical gender roles. That's all we read here. We must not make a law where Christ has given us liberty. Some might wonder, though, what if one spouse refuses to play their part? Am I excused from doing mine then? Say a husband is simply not loving his wife. Should a wife still submit? It really depends. In general, yes. In specific cases, though, maybe not. 
For example, I think that domestic abuse would be a clear exception to this principle. This is not talking about that situation. But as for following the, the Lord's specific commands to you, to borrow some of language from Jesus, what is it to you if someone else doesn't follow Jesus? You follow him. Like, and thankfully, if you want to fulfill your mission as a husband or a wife, you can do so regardless of whether your spouse assents to it. Like, you don't need to wait for permission to serve. Like, Christ really embodied this for us, right? Husbands, he loved us long before we ever submitted to him. And wives, he sacrificially submitted his own will for our sake long before we loved him. So even if, even if we have to submit within unfair treatment or love despite unloving behavior, we are following in the steps of our Savior and his cross-shaped love. So will you follow him? One last question on this point. When verse 24 says wives should submit in everything, does that mean a wife should follow whatever lead a husband gives? No, you should never follow your husband into sin. Okay, God is your higher authority. But also, your submission should never be a blind agreement or a docile obedience. You have gifts, you have a voice, and you have wisdom. So as you seek to follow this, as you seek to submit, you can absolutely respectfully disagree or urge another better course of action. Like as a husband, I can say we need that. We're not Jesus. So don't mistake us for him. Essentially, what verse 24 is talking about by in everything is in all areas of life. Right? It means that nothing is cordoned off or kept to oneself in marriage. Like the one flesh union is an all-encompassing relationship. But when we do this, when we do this sacrificially, boldly, and wisely, it displays a powerful picture to the world that they don't usually see. Now, for all that's made of a wife's submission... Not as much is made of a husband's mission, which is funny because it takes up three times the amount of space and words in Scripture. Perhaps men typically behave worse and thus need triple the correction. <laughs> but it's arguably the actually more challenging role to play as it essentially demands death. Look with me. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, what's harder, putting yourself under someone or giving yourself up altogether? probably shouldn't compare anyway. However, my point is just that if you want to get rid of verses 22 to 24, you'll have to get rid of all the verses that follow as well. And no one's asking for that. Like a wife compliments her husband, a husband is to compliment his wife. And both their roles are really defined by self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. So what's the husband's role? Well, God has commissioned complementary missions for spouses in marriage, and husbands should sacrificially love, sound familiar, sacrificially love and lead their wives. Husbands should sacrificially love and lead their wives. That we should lead goes back to that headship mentioned in verse 23. 
The husband is head of the wife. Now, this means that no matter how much we men would be happy letting women run the show or how content we'd be with letting our wives call all the shots. Yes, dear. Or how complacent our flesh would push us to be, letting her be the spiritual leader, the spiritual example in our home. Or how matriarchal a culture we come from, which North America is quickly becoming. Or how much time we want to spend on video games or watching sports. We are called by Jesus to crucify our self-centeredness, stand up, and seek to lead our homes. We must not abdicate our God-given role and mission. And at the same time, we must not abuse our God-given role and mission to lead. Like, we're called to lead like Jesus. If we lead like Jesus, we will never heartlessly insist that it's our way or the highway. If we lead like Jesus, we won't be bossy or manipulative, throwing our weight around. If we lead like Jesus, we won't ever seek to, to dominate our wives, bending them to our will. If we lead like Jesus, we will not talk to them or touch them in an ungentle or unholy way. Listen. Do not let your leadership role go to your head. Let it humble your heart. That God entrusts us with guiding and providing for his precious daughters. Wow. Don't imagine for one second that our mission here makes us superior to women in any way. Because we're not equivalent of Christ in his authority or power, not even close. But if Christ, who is infinitely great and infinitely good, can stoop to serve his clearly inferior bride, then surely we husbands can sacrificially love our wives who are equal to us. We are not like Christ in his superiority, but in his sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And look at verse 28 and on. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Cherishing, nourishing. This is serving. In Jesus' kingdom, leadership is defined as servant leadership. Putting ourselves, putting our own priorities and desires second for the sake of another. Some in our world may look on this as unmanly, soft, whipped behavior. Not at all. It takes real strength to be a servant leader. And Jesus showed us how. It's interesting here, I think, that, that Paul calls the husband the head, yet never tells him to take charge. Why not? Because he tells him to love. And catch it, don't miss this, the way that he leads his wife is by loving his wife. The way he leads his wife is by loving his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Indeed, husbands aren't just to love their wives when it's convenient or when it's romantic to do so. Husbands are to love their wives so self-sacrificially that it's reminiscent of Jesus' love. And how did Jesus love the church? He loved us to the point of death, sacrificing everything for us. Everything. C.S. Lewis says that the crown given to the husband is a crown of thorns. Guys, are you willing to wear that crown? Or do you perhaps make her wear it? Verse 33 repeats the command for husbands as a summary. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Our tendency is to love when we get something out of it. Right? Respect, sex, affirmation, prestige. But that's not true love. Like True love wants to give far more than it desires to get. So if you're a husband here, like seriously ask yourself, if you are loving your wife in this way, if you've got guts, ask her. Either way, how might you sacrificially love her today? This is, some of you might think this is a hard and high calling. I know. But men of God, he has built you to step up and wear the crown of sacrifice. And despite our fallen limitations, his spirit can empower us to do so. A follow-up question. Do you suppose submission is difficult in the context of that kind of love? Now, I'm not going to say that it's easy for anyone to submit. But I dare say that even if it's still hard, in the context of Christ-like love, submission tends to become a joy and an honor and a blessing. If, if you feel, guys, that you've got an unsubmissive wife, it might be true. But before ever accusing her of such, Look at yourself and ask if the way that you love her is making submission desirable at all. No matter what she does, you follow Christ. You follow Christ. Earlier this year, a news story out of Iowa told of how a man died after a tornado hit his home. But it was the way that he died that was noteworthy. When he saw the storm approaching, he told his wife to get into a bathtub. And then he laid himself down on top of her in the tub. And when the tornado hit, it flung them and the tub 30 meters in the air. As the storm chewed him up and ultimately killed him, he saved his wife's life. He completely shielded her from the damage and rescued her from the danger. And that, my friends, is what Christ did for us. He shielded us from the storm of God's wrath by laying himself down on the cross and letting it take him instead of us. If, if as you hear... God's word today, it makes you feel like a failure. That's really all of us. Yet God loves us anyway. And he sent his son to live, die, and rise again in our place. So if you see your need for Jesus today, and you're amazed at his sacrificial love for you, I hope that you'll decide to give your life to him today. Submitting yourself to his authority his loving authority. Really, it's only his great love that can change us. And he's in the process of doing so. Did you see that? 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Like If you want to be a part of that, come to Christ today. In marriage, we're supposed to see a picture of this great gospel love. In verse 31, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is what we're supposed to see. Like husbands and wives, if you realize how fallen your submission or your headship is today, run to Christ and let him forgive you and redeem you. He died to sanctify you and to change you. And then model your love after what you see in him. Men, most of you will not need to, need to physically die for your wife like the man in the tornado. No, if you need it, I have no doubt that most of you would not hesitate to do so. But sometimes, it might be more difficult to die to yourself on a daily basis. To die to your ambitions, your goals, your wants, your hobbies, your leisure. But that's our calling. Right? Our mission so may Christ be our example, and may his spirit empower us to walk in his footsteps. What should this practically look like in our homes? The answers could be limitless. Ask your wife how she appreciates being loved. You won't get only one answer. And again, the Bible's not overly specific or descriptive on how to apply this principle. Loving and leading a wife will look different in every culture and every home. But I'll tell you, it will look like serving, like we talked about. It'll look like sacrificing, all kinds of things. It'll look like taking initiative in leadership, seeking to spiritually lead your wife or kids, as Jesus does for us, seeking to, to make us, to help us grow in sanctification and holiness. We do for others. It'll look like gentleness in speech and behavior, keeping your temper in check. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3 tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her. So seeking to listen and hear her heart and understand her feelings or her life stages, showing honor to her, lifting her up, encouraging her, like speaking well of her. I could go on. But we are called to lead by loving our wives, whatever the cost to ourselves. And ultimately, husbands are to sacrificially love, and wives are to sacrificially love. Not merely to make their spouse feel special, but to love and glorify the Lord. And this gets at why we should ultimately submit or lead and love through it all. Why bother with this? Well, God has commissions complementary missions for spouses in marriage in order to love and become like the Lord. We have complementary missions in order to love and become like the Lord. And this point goes way beyond just marriage. So you're a kid or you're single or a divorcee or a widow, listen up. Because this should be the driving motivation behind every relationship we have. And you might hear all this about marriage roles and wonder, how in the world am I supposed to apply this in my life? Well, if you're in those situations, one, you can love and support and encourage the couples around you who are seeking to live this out. Not, don't, don't disparage them. 
Don't look down on them. Don't push them to abdicate or abuse their rules. Many of you will end up married one day. So I hope this helps prepare you to love well then. But also, consider how you treat your family members now and your friends now. Because if Jesus is changing us, we should all be treating one another with respect and honor, and mutual submission, and loving service, and sacrifice, all with the goal of loving Jesus and becoming like him. Remember, Ephesians 5.21 says, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, his sake. We want to love Jesus. And we who are married are to love our spouses as an expression of our love for him. How we want to become like Jesus. Therefore, we are to follow his example. The goal of the gospel, as well as the goal of marriage, is our holiness. And you see that in these verses. That he might sanctify her, make us holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As one pastor put it, we're to actively love each other toward magnificence. So, you want to become like Jesus? Then look carefully at how he's loved us, and then go and do likewise. And slowly but surely, he restores us to our original glory. As Keller concludes, the tender, serving authority of a husband's headship and the strong, gracious gift of a wife's submission restore us to who we were meant to be at creation. And that doesn't happen overnight. But one day, we'll see God's mission brought to completion. And we as a church will forever bow our knees to King Jesus in glory and splendor. But even now, may we begin to live out this eternal reality in the way that we love one another. Heavenly Father, please continue to speak to our hearts as we go from here. Change us for your glory. Help us see through the lies of this world. And help us see the absolute splendor of your plans for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.